0: Welcome, everyone, to Health or Consequences, the Massachusetts Health Policy Podcast of Commonwealth Magazine and Mass Inc. I'm John McDonough from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and joined by my co-host and partner, Paul Hattis, formerly of the Tufts University School of Medicine. And we come to you every month to bring some guests who have unique and important insights in terms of healthcare and public health in Massachusetts. And this month, we are just thrilled to welcome the new co-chairs of the Joint Committee on Public Health of the Massachusetts General Court, Senator Joe Comerford, who is starting her second term as chair of the committee, and Rep. Marjorie Decker, who has been a chair before of the Mental Health and Substance Use Committee and is now serving her first term as chair of the Public Health Committee. So we're going to hear from both of them. Paul and I have a list of questions, just a little bit about each of them. So Senator Cummerford is from Western Mass, uh, the area around Amherst and Northampton. And she's lived there since the 1990s. She has a master's in social work from Hunter College in New York City. She's worked for the American Friends Service Committee, uh, the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. She was executive director of the National priorities project she worked for moveon.org and so she has exposure to an enormous number of cutting edge and important issues in terms of massachusetts and the nation and she's in her second term in the state senate and her second term as the chair of the public health committee Uh, representative marjorie decker is uh, a member of the massachusetts house of representatives first elected in 2012 representing Cambridge. She grew up in public housing in Cambridge, in Cambridgeport, was the first member of her family to graduate from high school. She has a master's degree from the Kennedy School of Government. In 1999, she was elected to the Cambridge City Council, the youngest woman ever elected to that body where she served seven terms. Uh, She was appointed to the United Nations International Association of Peace Messenger Cities and has traveled the world to address issues like mining, exploitation, refugee children, and nuclear disarmament. And she is starting her first term as chair of the Public Health Committee. So welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for taking time to be here with us today. And we'll start with the first question I'll give uh, and start with Senator Comerford. What's your greatest worry right now for the Commonwealth about the COVID-19 pandemic and how do you assess the vaccine rollout in Massachusetts right now?
1: Uh, So first, let me just say, I'm so happy to be with you, both John and Paul, and delighted to be with Chair Decker. Um, And I thank you for this really important question. So my greatest worry for the pandemic, the COVID pandemic actually, and the vaccine rollout um, is tied together by one word, inequity. Uh, The COVID pandemic ripped through the Commonwealth and exposed inequities that we've all known have been long present in our midst. And these inequities drove a greater percentage of people of color to get the virus, a greater percentage of people of color to become more ill with the virus, a greater percentage of people of color to die from COVID. Uh, And so the, the thing that captivates me, and I'm focused on now both in my role as Senate Chair of Public Health and also as the Senate Chair of the COVID Oversight Committee, is what do we do now as we come out of this one-year arc to address these inequities and write a new chapter for the Commonwealth, whereby not only are we stronger and more prepared, um, but we are looking at the very root causes of what drove these inequities and going right at them in terms of budget and policy priorities. In terms of the vaccine rollout, I'll say that Um, I myself have been troubled, as have my constituents, um, with a marked lack of a plan, uh, some confusion in the early days of of the rollout and actually inequitable access to the vaccine uh, for communities of color. I'm also concerned that the plans that the Commonwealth had with emergency preparedness and public health were not foregrounded initially in this vaccine rollout. They've sat on a shelf um, while big vac sites have been stood up. Um, That is something that the COVID Preparedness Committee is looking at in this Tuesday, this coming hearing on Tuesday. And I think it's something that we all have to take a hard look at, again, in that
2: uh, bucket of work to make us stronger as we go forward. And I'll stop there. Rep Decker. Uh, Thank you, John and Paul. It's great to be here with all of you. And it's great to be here with my my co-chair in the Senate. Um, You know, I think for me, it it won't surprise people that the issue of equity is also something that has weighed heavily on on my heart, and it's what keeps me up at night from the beginning of how it was decided whether or not schools would close down. um, The governor essentially left that to school districts initially, you'll remember, right? And I thought, oh my God, are you kidding? School districts can't decide if they want a charter school, but they should decide whether or not they should close in response to an infectious disease that we're all still learning about. And I think for me, that kind of has set the tone of where we are. It has been, communities have really been left to themselves with very, very broad strokes and guidelines from the governor. Um, And that has played out in how the the rolling back of what we've shut down has occurred. Um, And it's, you know, so it's your choice to go sit in a restaurant right now, but should you? And what I want from the governor is more um, transparency about what is informing his decisions. It's okay that we might disagree, but what I want him to do is to be more transparent about is science informing this decision to open up? Are the other doctors on your COVID-19 advisor, are they telling you to do that? Or are you responding to a constituency within the business community? Because even within the business community, there's a lot of diversity of opinion about whether or not this even makes sense right now for businesses. But again, we're leaving it to individuals to decide, which would be okay, except we're talking about an infectious disease in which some people don't have a choice whether or not to continue to expose themselves, like those who actually have to go to work and be exposed to people coming in at full capacity at a restaurant. Um, I also think about the, the vaccination rollout, and again, I think for me this is again where the issue of transparency becomes really important. How people have been able to access and when they've been able to access it. The issue of eligibility has really, you know, I, I think I've overused the word a lot, but whiplash continues to feel a lot like what we've been experiencing. Um, should it have been people 75 and over only? Um, you know, did that actually exclude um, constituencies? Whose life expectancies don't um, exceed 75 and over compared to other constituencies. And I think that is an issue of racial equity that's become more apparent. Who was at the table making these decisions? And then while we struggle with the issue of um, supply, which continues to be an issue, I've pushed back on the governor to say it's not all about supply. Um, You know, while mass vac sites have a role. Um, they, I believe, and many of my constituents believe, they have taken up too much of a role at the expense of ensuring that local communities that have trusted relationships um, can actually get the vaccines into people who need them the most. And I think one of the things we often have been hearing about is, is there vaccine hesitancy within certain communities and constituencies? And that's really been the wrong question. Have we provided the kind of access and trusted relationships that people need in order to feel safe and confident and have the availability and so i think that um you know i I think that i I just i continue to be troubled that when i think about public health and this new new role in this new chair for me the issue of equity whether it's economic or racial equity this that's the core of public health right are we doing everything we can to identify and understand who right in this moment is most vulnerable and have we providing the resources and the tools to quickly um, strengthen them and give them what they need in this moment as we continue to roll this out. So it's complicated, but some of these questions are not complicated. And I don't think they've been the first questions that have been asked when making these decisions. And we just need to have the governor be more transparent, more consistent, and it's okay to not agree with him. I I don't have a problem with that. Um, I do have a problem when I can't keep up with where the decisions are being made and, and on behalf of who.
3: What are the priority bills before the Joint Committee on Public Health in this upcoming session? It could involve COVID, but certainly other things. And Are you expecting other hot issues potentially to appear on that priority list as, as, as time goes by? We'll start with you first, if we can, Rep. Decker.
2: Yeah, I'm actually going to pivot and let you start with Senator Comerford. I've been on the committee for four weeks, so I have a, a few thoughts about what, what I think the committee um, priorities will be as we are still waiting for the bills to come our way but I I would love to hear from Senator Comerford first.
1: Um, Absolutely, delighted. Um,
2: I love this question.
1: So last session, and we were catching up a little bit about this earlier, the Public Health Committee, I was really proud of the work that we did. A number of our bills, uh, because our colleagues filed such good bills, made it to the floor, either as standalone bills that were passed, like Laura's Law, led by um, two great folks uh, in the House and the Senate, um, or as part of, of the bigger telehealth bill. Um, that also passed. But uh, So last year, we, um, we passed the strongest in the nation flavored vaping and menthol cigarette ban. Uh, we passed a commission on racial disparities in maternal health, which uh, Rep. Decker and I are going to work on this session. And then we passed a bill called SAFE, S-A-P-H-E, uh, 1.0, or State Action for Local Public Health Excellence, mm-hmm. um, which we're going to build on, I hope, this session. Uh, we also held three oversight hearings, a food as public health hearing, a rural health Uh, And uh, we did the coronavirus hearing for the legislature on March 4th, which now looking back at a 200 person packed hearing room um, feels quite uh, moving to me, actually, that we were focused there. I think, um, again, these are just my own uh, thoughts about what we might see this session, uh, since we don't have the bills in front of us yet. Um, There is a racial health equity uh, piece of legislation that I have put forward. It's called we call it the Healing Act. And that actually is, it's kind of a, a bold uh, piece of legislation, it, it establishes the need for integrating health equity or racial health equity in all government policies. When I listen to um, folks like Dr. Gallia, who are speaking now about what has to be done in order for us to really address the inequities present uh, that were present before COVID again, but are now present so uh, so blister- in such a blistering fashion. Now, uh, you know, it feels like we need as a legislature to take up racial health equity in a very pronounced way. Um, You'll excuse the pandemic puppy in the background. Um, We also have the next version of state action for local public health excellence coming before us. Um, That actually would accelerate the progress made and it would help say, okay, we're at 351 local public health departments. What can we do to better resource the regionalization to actually resource the training resource standards for these local public health officials to have help them share data uh, which is now way too difficult uh, so that bill uh, hopefully will be before the um, public health committee there will be again uh, the end of life options I'm imagining that was one of there were one of two epic hearings last session that one um, uh, was one of them it was a 13-hour hearing where we heard both sides of Um, the argument, if you will, about um, allowing people to have autonomy at the end of their life. Um, And then I'll just, I'll stop by saying that there are vaccine bills uh, that have been filed. And again, these vaccine bills, bills in and of themselves were quite prescient um, the last session. Uh, And so uh, there was a community immunity act filed. There was another bill that was um, that went a little further than that. Um, we passed uh, with uh, you know with some modifications the community immunity, uh, and I would imagine we'd be considering that as well.
3: A lot there, Rep. Decker. Do you want to build on any of that? Realizing as you said, you're four weeks into your uh, role. On
2: yeah, I mean, I think what's going to thank you and uh, thank you to Senator Comerford for all the work she did in the previous term um, and capturing that. Um, I, I think a couple of things. One is that COVID 19 is not going away so this will continue to be a public health issue. So some of that will come through bills that will get signed to us. Um, but also you know we as we know that the issues will continue to emerge that are not you know necessarily filed today but that we still have to pay attention to. so there's going to be an important public health lens that continues to focus on how are we managing um, the actual the virus and the vaccination process. I also think about other issues that have to do with public health. And it's so interesting, you know, John, when you were the committee chair, um, I don't think the committee was divided into to several committees that it is now. There was now there's mental health, now there's healthcare finance, um, you know, financial services and you were chairing the public health and I was an aide at the time, so I remember this. Um, and so, when I think about, you know, when I think about children's mental health, that's something that I'm still working on and very passionate about. It'll be in a different committee, but that's still a public health, like that, an issue. Um, working on reducing poverty, those bills might not always come to the public health committee, but reducing poverty is a public health issue. Ensuring that people who are um, incarcerated, that whether or not they should be or not, isn't is a public health issue, right? Prevention work around that um, criminal justice um, continues to be a public health issues. So even the lenses of you know what is a public health issue, I think we want to, we, we have the best jobs in the, in the whole world. I really think that as elected officials. And then when you become a chair of a committee and you have the opportunity to really look at legislation that comes before you, but often you are also seen now as, as a voice of that issue simply by being the chair. So it's a, a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous responsibility to now have this place where we will continue to ensure are we ensuring um with equity that the people of massachusetts that through the the core principles of public health are keeping people safe and strengthening them and and building resiliency
3: let me pick up on one issue which has been before the committee in the past and i'll let one of you decide who wants to go first it has to do with the issue of religious exemptions for vaccinations where do each of you stand on that especially uh although COVID-19 is still under an EUA, but eventually when it's fully approved, you'll potentially have to face that issue in that context. So, Rep. Decker, do you want to go first?
0: Sure.
2: I mean, I I think this is, you know, this is a sensitive issue, right? It's, um, you know, we keep each other safe when we have this kind of unspoken social contract. And sometimes it's actually written, right? So you don't go to school unless you have certain vaccines Um, or, um government allows certain exemptions that we believe will still allow everyone else to stay safe and it is a give and take of how do we coexist and keep each other safe Um, i personally am a strong believer in vaccines and i do believe um and i say that with understanding there's also this very ugly history in our country um that has allowed people of color to be used in in medical experiments that have been. that they did not consent to and have been dangerous and harmful. So there is a population in our state that has um, every right to um, demand extraordinary transparency and equitability about the development of vaccines and the distribution of vaccines. So there's that piece of it. And then there's others who for their own personal and religious beliefs believe that, you know, this is not something that they want to ascribe to. And I think that's where it gets more complicated. and so I know that as the chair, I will I will be a listener. I do have my personal views that you know um, will absolutely be shaping this. Um, but we are in a pandemic, so I felt strongly about this two years ago. The pandemic has not made me feel less strong um, in the need to ensure that we protect each other. And so I think you know my job will be to listen and to um, and really, quite frankly, will be to follow the science and ask you know are there paths here to honor people who have personal beliefs that ensure that we are all safe and so i will be looking to science for a lot of that guidance um, as you know as i think that's how we have tried to really look at vaccines and the, and the public good and i will and, and continue. senator, to senator
3: cumberford your, your thoughts uh, about the, whether we're going to continue the religious exemption or not in our state
2: yeah
1: thank you so much for this important question i really appreciate what rep decker just offered and I, I, I share a lot of those values, as she said. Um, and I, I just want to say that even if you take as an assumption that some people with deep religious objections to vaccines have a right to be excused, our system for religious exemptions is completely broken in the Commonwealth. There are no standards, no reporting, no consistent policy. The bill puts the bill that, that I was discussing before the Community Immunity Act puts the management of exemptions under local public health rather than school administrators. And allows for consistent data collection and an exemption process. Um, so again, we were able to move this, uh, you know, out of committee last time. And um, it did not exempt religious folks with religious exemptions. It did not pre- prevent them from stating those religious exemptions, but it did standardize it. It did track the numbers of people. It did ensure that we had some sense of where pockets of folks who felt called to a religion um, we're living so that we, so that the state could importantly monitor um, where we had herd immunity. But I, like Rep Decker, I I believe in the science of this. Um, I am, I support vaccines as a public health measure, but I also understand that this is a very complicated process. And so like last session, um, I I will do deep listening um, to the folks who really um, have fears, have considerations and felt ill-used, uh, by the medical community and, and with Rep. Decker, try to find the best and, and fairest way forward.
0: I wanna to turn to another issue. Uh, late last year, you succeeded uh, Senator Comerford in having established a new special commission to address maternal mortality in the Commonwealth. Um, and both of you will play leadership roles in that new panel. What are your expectations and hopes for the work of this uh, new commission?
1: Um, So first let me say, I'm really excited to do this work with Rep Decker Um, and her work in this space is just terrific. You know, I I think we all know this, the facts are really stark. Uh, Black women are twice as likely to die from pregnancy related causes as white women. Black women are twice as likely to suffer from maternal, severe maternal morbidities as white women. The CDC suggests that 60% of maternal deaths are preventable. So, you know, that's the context in which we begin this work. Uh, You know, I think this commission, um, as it was set up, again, our colleagues who put the bill before us did a lot of terrific work. The advocates did amazing work. Uh, The commission has good people in it. Um, We have physicians specializing in maternal care. We have experienced nurse with midwives. We have those directly affected. So individuals from the community, we have mental health practitioners. We have a great group of people on this committee uh, and the commission is going to have to look at the evidence and make recommendations. And and I'm excited for what both the, the process of moving through the commission and I'm excited at what we're going to be able to say together as a commission with the chairs of public health and the legislation and budget priorities that we can advocate for once we've come to some uh, united conclusions.
0: Brett Decker.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I I just would share a lot of what Senator Comerford just um, mentioned. I think this is, um, you know, John, I think you could probably think about your time in the legislature, right? These are the moments where this is why you do it, right? How, what an incredible privilege to be sitting at a table with people whose lived experiences have not been honored or acknowledged or addressed by the medical community. And the data is startling to shows us otherwise. And so to be in a position now as the chair of the Public Health Commission, where I get to be at that table and really listen to a a group of experts, experts in their own lives, experts in um, maternal health, and to really hear um, okay so how are we going how are we going to change this how because these are choices um, the, the statistical outcomes are choices that we now have the chance to, to change so a year from now we should be coming out with a report that says okay we've done our due diligence we've listened we've collected data we have recommendations um, and good public policy actually allows us to create different outcomes so ultimately this will be saving lives um, and it also, Will be providing us a, I hope you know, a greater window into. when we, We're at a time where people now are talking about, you know, have have far more comfort talking about um, white supremacy and and white privilege and systemic racism and medical racism. I, I don't even know if, like six years ago, people could have some of those, When I say people, I, I mean uh, people like me, white white people who could easily have those words come out. So easily. Um, But to really now get a deeper look in sort of things don't just happen. Groups of people don't just get underserved or have different health outcomes or poor health outcomes. Um, It's because choices have been made that um, uplift, honor, and listen and believe one group of people over another. And so to know that this commission is going to really um, you know, I, I'm there to listen and to help gather and to help move this process along, but I will really be following the the members of this commission. And I'm really excited that my house colleague um, who was very involved, in this, uh, Representative Liz Miranda, will be on this commission helping us to continue doing the work that she also helped start that made this commission possible. Th- these are the moments where you just know what an incredible privilege it is to serve as a state representative.
3: Rep. Decker, we do something Particular in Massachusetts, where we organize local public health around 351 town and city boards, the, by far the most in the nation. Should we be adapting a more regional structure for resources and organization of local public health?
2: So I will tell you, Paul. This is a, this is an issue that I will start learning more about. I can tell you um, experientially what happened with the pandemic. It was very clear that there was, you know, not equitable resources and experience across the state when we were quickly, um, when, when the governor needed to rely on local boards of health to help identify anyone who had COVID, to do contact tracing, and it was, um, it was a setup for failure, right? They were not, a, and so I know I come from a community that has a robust public health local commission, um, and we funded it, and it's Um, and it's in partnership with our our local hospital, the Cambridge Health Alliance, that is not true for even communities that we abut with or throughout the state. And so I know that Senator Comerford will talk more about the incredible work that she did in trying to strengthen and provide some more standards and training. Um, But I do think it does ask us, um, as we move forward, this pandemic has shown us how important local boards of health Um, are. And I think about even the vaccination rollout, right? Our local boards of health play a really important role in having trusted relationships with community organizations and community leaders. Um, But that's not equally true throughout the state either. So it really is going to merit the question of, um, I I, I only laugh a little bit, John, when you mentioned, you know, should this be done countywide? Because I believe you were a legislator and I was a staff when the debate was, should we get rid of county government for other reasons, right? But this really does beg the question of, you know, are some things better served regionally? And um, I think the answer is yes, yes and no. And we will have to figure out what that um, looks like further down the road. And I know that the Senator and some of my House colleagues have um, are taking a deeper look at that with additional legislation they file. So we will be looking at that carefully.
3: Senator, your thoughts?
2: I want to go back to something. Thank you so much. I
1: want to go back to something that Rep. Decker said that I really resonated with me, which is that nothing happens by accident, right? Policy decisions are choices. Budget priorities are choices that the legislature makes. And I think this is very uh, that that very concept is one that I share and is very applicable to this this question that you're asking, um, Paul. You know, what the heck do we do in a Commonwealth that has 351 local boards of health, 351 ways of addressing local public health? And I I do, and actually it's actually less material than I do, but I happen to believe in regionalization. What's really important is that these local boards of public health, local communities, believe in regionalization. Um, I wanna just cheer for Rep. Denise Garlick and Rep. Hannah Kane um, and Senator Lewis, Jason Lewis, who've been in this conversation longer than I have. You know, with their good work in past years, we have in the Commonwealth begun to offer resources and opportunities for regions to come together um, and um, really consolidate uh, public health in a cooperative collaborative manner. And we've seen really good outcomes as a result of that. Uh, And I think that's the opportunity for us is to really ask coming out of the pandemic again with the pandemic in mind and everything we've learned, what can we do to strengthen the foundation of local public health, if we believe, as I do, that local public health is really the very center of what keeps us well. Local public health, you know, is doing all, actually it's invisible um, most days, most hours of every day, unless we need it, and then it becomes center stage. Uh, But it's doing the things that keep us well. And our job, I think, as the legislature is to strengthen it, is to say okay you know what a town of 700 a town of 1100 maybe you can't set up your whole infrastructure uh, because you just don't have a tax base or a population to support it but together with two or three other communities you can really have uh, a level of care a level of standard uh, metrics to meet a level of training that will really ensure that your communities have access now and going forward to a public health infrastructure that everybody in the commonwealth needs and deserves
3: so during this pandemic, the data indicates that opioids and other addiction challenges have only gotten worse. Do you agree? And we'll start with you first, as Senator referred. And if so, what should be done about it?
1: Thanks for that question. Um, you're right. Uh, opioid deaths, opioid addiction is an, an absolute major challenge. Um, the state estimated that there were about, I, th- I think, 2,000, or actually more than 2,000 opiate uh, overdoses, uh, overdoses related deaths in 2019 are about 170 a month. Um, And for the first nine months of 2020, uh, which is the data that I've seen available, there were over 1500 estimated deaths. And just in my part of the state, uh, which is Franklin County, um, largely rural, very poor and Hampshire County, uh, the crisis is actually not abated at all. It actually in Franklin County, it's gotten worse. Um, so I, I believe that we have to strengthen our investment as a legislature. Um, opioid addiction funding actually fell almost 5.5 percent last year, and Governor Baker actually proposed another 1.5 percent cut for this coming budget, which is actually the wrong the wrong direction. If you agree that um, you know we have an economic justice pandemic, we have a COVID-19 pandemic, but we also have a mental health and addiction pandemic that's a result of all of the stressors, then we actually have to lean in and really invest in addiction-related funding and programs and and mental health. And I know the chair here has a deep base, but mental health-related programs that are gonna go at the root causes of opioid addiction and really uh, do everything we can to both stem it, but then treat it for folks who are really needing that kind of
2: uh,
3: support. Rob Decker, your thoughts?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, so I would say that we needed to do more prior to the pandemic. The pandemic has made it clear that those needs are only rising and getting and get are greater every day. So whether that is looking at various tools that come along with harm reduction, the pandemic has made it very difficult for people to access the actual people and places that allowed harm reduction to take place when you have a rising population of people who um, are experiencing homelessness, right? That again, contributes to what we are saying for people who are either experiencing relapse or just aren't able to get the support and the tools that they need to, to stay safe and, and quite frankly, to stay alive. You know, when we look at addiction, it's two things. It's, it's about trying to help people treat their addiction um, and hopefully provide them the programs to actually, you know, be able to address the addiction and maybe no longer, um, you know experience you know experiencing the substance use every day and then there's people who continue who will continue to use and the goal is really about helping to keep them alive. Um, and and those are sometimes different tools or of treatment. We also know that um we do not have enough places for adolescents who are experiencing substance use disorders and have enough treatment. We didn't before then we, we don't now I think this pandemic is just showing us that all of these needs have only continued to um, to to rise and to grow and you know you can't separate substance use from issues around economic stability from having the mental health support that you need and i you know one of the things that we've also known is that prior to the pandemic we were paying attention to the fact that as substance use was increasing we were also seeing Um, places where HIV rates were going back up. Um, That was in Boston and that was in central Massachusetts. And so, and there was a correlation there. And so when we look at harm reduction and we look at providing people the tools they need to address their um, addiction, but also just to stay alive, you have to also talk about um, a a safe place to live, mental health support, economic security. And these are all, they're, they're so interrelated and while also needing additional um, resources to address the substance use disorders. And so the question is, have more of us seen the suffering of our loved ones who were either were continuing to struggle or who've had relapse um, and start demanding that we have a more comprehensive approach, which will be the way we actually are able to um, provide additional support.
0: Uh, one final question, a little different. Um, in public education, Massachusetts compares itself and benchmarks with other states. And it also just all the time routinely benchmarks with how we stand up with other countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Germany, Singapore. Uh, In health, we compare ourselves with other states and rarely if ever look at how we stand with other advanced countries. And the truth is when we compare ourselves with other countries, our standing is not great. It's mediocre to poor. Um, Are we uh, shortchanging ourselves by not really benchmarking ourselves to other advanced countries as opposed to just states in the United States where the overall performance is mediocre to pathetic? Uh, absolutely.
1: I, I think mediocre or, or poor or pathetic are the right words here. Yeah, absolutely. We should challenge our state to meet the standards set by other well-off nations. Um, otherwise we're, we're sort of grading on a curve. Um, I'd point to two things to that should be done to improve us uh, as a system. Uh, First, we dramatically underinvest in both public health and all the other factors that contribute to overall health. As you both know very well, and as the chair knows, our health is more than a product of what doctors and nurses do in the hospitals. It's about clean air and water, decent housing, education, not living uh, generations in poverty. And so if we want our people to be healthy, we have to do a lot more in those areas. Other countries spend more on social services, less on medical care, and end up being much healthier than we are. All the data suggests that. And second, even though we are the best in the nation in terms of insurance coverage, with around 97 of the state covered, people still have a problem in Massachusetts affording care. Some 15% of the people in Massachusetts say that they sometimes can't get the care they need due to expenses. And so I believe healthcare is a right and that's why I'm a supporter of Medicare for All, that type of single-payer system. Uh, and in the meantime, we just have to lower co-pays, lower deductibles, and use our power to make drugs more affordable, make mental health truly uh, in parity with physical health and, and so much more.
0: Thank you. Rep. Decker.
2: Thanks for the question, John. Um, you know, I think it's important. I, I again, I've been in this role for four weeks as the chair of public health, so I haven't taken as deeper dive on some of this as as you know I will. But I think ultimately, what I would say is, you know, our job as legislators to say, um, you know, regardless of how people are doing in other states or other countries, are people in our state suffering? Are they able to take care of themselves and their families? We know that social determinants play a significant role in greater poorer health outcomes. So when people don't have access to, you know, the kind of education that allows them to fulfill who they should be in the world and go out there and then, or they do, and then they get a job that actually pays really low wage, right? It's, you cannot live in almost, I don't think you can live anywhere in Massachusetts on um, the um, minimum wage right now and, and, and rent a, a one bedroom house. And so it really is, it's a much larger question. And I know it's, you know, we want to parse this all out and say, you know, healthcare, housing, food security, mental health. But the truth is that the reason why, and Senator alluded to this, right? The reason why some of our 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 medical costs are so high is because we're not actually investing enough in ensuring that people are able to meet their basic, what I believe are basic human rights, and their needs. And when we don't then in fact, it does cost us more. Right now, our healthcare system is costing all of us a lot of money. When someone does not have a place to live or that they can't feed their children or they're hungry, that costs all of us money. Whether you like it or not, it cost, it's costing us money. And if the federal government doesn't actually address it, then it falls on state governments. When state governments don't address it, then it falls on municipalities and then it falls on school districts. And then when none, when none of those places address it, it's being left to the individuals to suffer, often silently and, being left with a feeling of shame, that somehow it is their um, lack of uh, determination and will um, that doesn't put food on their plates or a shelter over their homes. And we just know that that's, that's nonsense. Having grown up in poverty and having quite a bit of you know my, my family and friends who are still in those same circumstances, I think it's always important to remind people, poverty is not an identity. It's a series of policy choices. This, this issue of should we be doing better? Of course we should be doing better. But my real hope is that we see investing in in families and in in reducing poverty um, should be a a long-term goal of this country and every level of state government. So um, that's how I would answer that question.
3: Rep Decker, Senator Cumberford, thank you so much for such an incredible, wide-ranging discussion, being our guest today on Health or Consequences.
2: Such a pleasure. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having us.